0: Welcome back, comrades. You have made it to the end of Capital Volume One and the end of this podcast. That is so impressive. I know that this took a lot of dedication, determination, pushing through tough parts, and a deep commitment to developing as a socialist and revolutionary to make it this far. Even just listening to these lessons is no small feat. So we really commend you for taking this journey with us. In our final episode, we turn to exactly how some of the historical prerequisites of capitalism that Marx had previously mentioned but set aside actually came about. Marx dispels the myth of smart and creative and entrepreneurial individuals versus stupid or lazy individuals. And Marx shows that capital in England came about through force, through genocide, slavery, dispossession, the use of the state, and specifically its laws and the police that enforce them, and more. Of course, capital is a continual process of reproduction, as we discussed in episode 10, which means that it continues to use these methods today. After going through his critique of private accumulation, we spend time on chapter 32, which is a few pages where Marx summarizes the historical struggles that brought about the capitalist revolution and that can bring about a communist revolution. While linking this back to chapter 10 and his call for reforms, Marx doesn't end with the revolution, however. He ends with chapter 33 on colonialism, and we discuss why this is. And also, I'll have some important information and parting words for you about the show, so please stay tuned at the end to hear from me one last time. Without further ado, let's dive in.
1: beginning to hear alarm about a second mortgage shock. Last month alone, more than 70,000 families lost their homes. Stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The coronavirus pushing unemployment
0: to its highest level since the Great Depression.
1: American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year.
0: Millions of Americans are receiving food stamp benefits
1: for the first time. Would you swap working for a company in favor of living in a communist country? A surprising number of millennials in the U.S. would do precisely that. Welcome to episode 12, Comrades, where we will finish the book. This episode will cover part 8 on the so-called primitive accumulation. So finally, at the end of the book, Marx turns to a historical investigation of some of the ways the capital originally accumulated and spread. Its placement at the end of the book is interesting, and there are some who recommend reading this part first because it's helpful to have a background before proceeding into the more abstract chapters in the beginning of the book. The downside to this, I think, is that it can tie Marx's analysis of capitalism in general to this particular story, which is why I think he put it at the end. This is an example of how capitalism came to be in England rather than the exact history of capitalism overall in the history of capitalism in every country. It's an incredibly important part and one that's often misinterpreted. Marx is describing a historical process, but he never implies it's one that only happened in the past and that doesn't continue today. It definitely does, and we'll note some of the ways it does throughout this episode. So we'll begin with chapter 26, The Secret of Primitive Accumulation. This is a slightly different title from Part 8, and the difference is important. Marx is not describing primitive accumulation, but presenting a critique of the bourgeois political economist's concept of primitive accumulation. Throughout the book, Marx has raised and then set aside the question of how labor power came to be a commodity, how the worker came to have nothing to sell but their labor power because they were freed from the means of subsistence, and he's raised, but set aside the question of how the original capital the capitalist got accumulated. This is an accumulation that is not the result of the capitalist mode of production, but its starting point. He says the concept of primitive accumulation, quote, plays in political economy about the same part as original sin in theology. Its origins are supposed to be explained when it is told as an anecdote of the past. So the story goes something like this. Once upon a time, there were two groups of people. One group was thrifty, smart, inventive, creative, hardworking, and frugal. The other group were lazy, wasteful, made poor choices. They squandered whatever they had. The former came to be capitalists. The latter came to be workers. And this story justifies private property. Marx is going to show us, however, that, quote, in actual history, it is notorious that conquest, enslavement, robbery, murder, briefly force, play the great part, end quote. So in other words, it was actually through the violation of the quote-unquote sacred laws of private property the capital originally accumulated. The capitalist system itself doesn't produce its own presuppositions, which are the separation of laborers from property and the means of production, and the ownership of the means of production and capital in the hands of the capitalists. This process precedes capitalism, and it transforms, on the one hand, he says, the social means of subsistence and of production into capital, on the other, the immediate producers into wage laborers. Primitive accumulation is therefore a process of divorcing people from the means of subsistence. From land, from wealth, the productive forces, their skills, their cultures, their knowledges, and so on. So, in other words, we just left the generalization of the logic of capital in chapter 25, in which Marx put together the different pieces of the dialectic he assembled. But he still hasn't answered the question. Where did capital actually come from? Its logic didn't spontaneously develop. So in what ways did this happen? Throughout the next chapters, Marx takes us through some of the ways that this happened, including by taking property from the church and the state, the expropriation of common land, feudal and clan property through legislation, the acquisition of gold and silver, slavery and genocide. He begins with the expropriation of the agricultural producer of the person from the soil, which he says is the basis of the whole process. But note the last sentence, quote, in England alone, which we take as our example, has it the classic form, end quote. So in one of the four words, we saw that Marx justified why he focused on England. Capital was most advanced there. And as a result, it was also one of the most important colonizing powers in the world. So it provides a good example. But an example is just that, an example, not a comprehensive explanation or account, something that we can generalize. In chapter 27, then, Marx looks at the expropriation of the agricultural population from the land. In England, this expropriation resulted from the thefts of land, thereby forcing peasants into wage labor. So, feudal lords conquered and privatized land. Previously, he notes that peasants, quote, had the same right to the land as the feudal lord. There are various reasons why this happens, but they're generally all due to the subjection of capital and the transformation of capital from land to money. One example he gives is the rise of the Flemish wool manufacture, which increased the price of wool and therefore gave incentive for feudal lords to transform land from harvesting, which required more peasant labor, into pasture, which required less. At first, legislation tries to halt this process, but the power of money prevails over the law, and the law comes to serve money power instead. The expropriation of the land accelerates with the reformation of the church. As Marx writes on 512 Online, 675 International and 881 Penguin, quote, The estates of the church were to a large extent given away to rapacious royal favorites or sold at a nominal price to speculating farmers and citizens who drove out en masse the hereditary subtenants and threw their holdings into one, end quote. So as the church lost power relative to the state, their land was transferred to the state, which then gave it away or sold it at ridiculously low prices. And so the fact that this is tied up with the reformation of the church, in other words, in the sort of delegitimization of the church, therefore the delegitimization of its power and its role in the economy and in the political process, points to the fact that all of this is historically contingent and there's a variety of factors at play in the formation of capital. The state also straight up stole and gave away lands. And he gives the example of William of Orange. Under his command, landlords and capitalists quote, inaugurated the new era by practicing on a colossal scale thefts of state lands thefts that had hitherto been managed more modestly, end quote. So finally, there was the enclosure of the commons. Now, the commons were distinct from private property and from state property. They were land that was worked on in common without the management of the state. The commons were, he writes, initially expropriated by individual acts of violence in the 15th and 16th centuries. But by the 17th century, it happens through state legislation through acts which granted landlords common land as private property. Because the common lands weren't managed by the state, they were more easily subjected to these individual acts of violence. Marx then returns to the, quote-unquote, permanent or sacred laws of private property on which bourgeois political economy rests, to show that all of this was, quote, the most shameless violation of these rights. Through the grossest acts of violence to persons as soon as they are necessary to lay the foundations of the capitalistic mode of production." So remember that the subtitle to capital as a whole is a critique of political economy and this is obviously an important one. Now over time, the very memory, he says, of the agricultural worker to common land was vanished. But there were still fierce struggles and violence, such as the burning of villages and, with the force of British soldiers, the direct eviction of peasants from the land. In the last paragraph, he sums this process up. Quote, the spoilation of the church's property, the fraudulent alienation of the state domains, the robbery of the common lands, the usurpation of feudal and clan property, and its transformation into modern private property under circumstances of reckless terrorism, were just so many idyllic methods of primitive accumulation. End quote. So here we can see how this kind of accumulation is still ongoing. I mean, there's still the direct sale or the leasing of state lands to private corporations, often for ridiculously low prices. There are still practices of eminent domain. It happens through legislation, but it also happens through violence and intimidation. There's countless stories of homeowners holding out against corporate developers who face violence and threats of violence to get them to sell their homes. There's still the privatization of water and the selling of water rights to corporations as well. And there's still the violence against those who would resist it. These are just a few examples of how this continues today. So in chapter 27, Marx described how peasants were expropriated from the land and how the land was privatized. But there wasn't enough capitalist industry to absorb the displaced laborers. And there were a whole host of problems in terms of turning them into proletarians and disciplining them into the factory system and the new capital-labor relation. So in chapter 28, he looks at how this happened. And it happened again, as it happens today, through violence, both legal and extra-legal. This chapter details how these newly, quote-unquote, freed persons were disciplined and how they were forced to become wage laborers and punished if they didn't many didn't want to move to industrial centers and work under capitalist conditions. As he discusses on 522 Online, 686 International, and 896 Penguin, the former peasants were forced off the land, but legislation, quote, treated them as voluntary criminals and assumed that it depended on their own goodwill to go on working under the old conditions that no longer existed, end quote. It's really the same way that homeless people are treated as criminals today, as if the conditions they're forced to live with, sleeping and performing their bodily functions, etc., in public, are choices that they make. It's the same way that so many unemployed people who work in the black or gray market are treated. This is why we call them political prisoners. Capital creates the conditions and then criminalizes, arrests, and violently represses the people forced to live under these new conditions. It imagines that they could go on living under the old conditions, as if it was their choice. Marx then presents a series of very grotesque laws aimed at disciplining the new jobless wage laborers, including whipping, enslavement, branding, and execution. We see today how capital disciplines those sections of the Industrial Reserve Army through criminalizing sleeping in parks, criminalizing panhandling, through loitering laws, and loitering is basically just hanging out in public, but it's criminalized. They criminalize handing out aid, and so on. And Marx notes about how under James I, quote, anyone wandering about and begging is declared a rogue and a vagabond, end quote. And then on 523 online, 688 International and 899 Penguin, quote, thus were the agricultural people forcibly expropriated from the soil, driven from their homes, turned into vagabonds, and then whipped, branded, tortured by laws grotesquely terrible into the discipline necessary for the wage system." End quote. Now the conditions of life in the factories and the fields were so different, and the command over labor by capital, as we've seen, is so barbaric that many, even if they could find work, simply didn't want to accept capitalist discipline. It's not enough, he continues, to accumulate the capital relation or to compel people to sell their labor power. So as he writes on the next page, quote, the advance of capitalist production develops a working class which by education, tradition, habit, looks upon the conditions of that mode of production as self-evident laws of nature. The organization of the capitalist process of production, once fully developed, breaks down all resistance, end quote. In other words, it isn't enough for the objective conditions to change. Capitalism has to try to fade its overt violence into the background or to cover it with humanitarian justifications like democracy, peace, freedom, safety, law and order, and so on and so forth. This is an incredibly important point, and it also points to how the base of capital depends on its superstructure how the relations of production are both objective and subjective. It's the way that things are and the way that we think things are. So one common justification for this in the United States today is meritocracy. This is really the primitive accumulation myth playing out, right? The idea that the poor are poor due to their poor choices. The rich are rich because they made smart choices they saved. And this is what so much of the educational system in the U.S. is committed to, right? Omitting the genocide and slavery that founded the country. But we also learn discipline through schooling in a way that makes it seem natural. There's a really great book called Schooling in Capitalist America by Samuel Bowles and Herbert Gintis that touches on this and shows how the relations within schooling, between students, between students and teachers, teachers and administrators, and so on, really mirror the relations between workers, between workers and managers, managers and owners, and so on. So education continues to play a vital role in this, as does the distortion of history. In terms of legislation, there were three kinds that disciplined wage laborers. The first was the extension of the working day. We saw this in Chapter 10 also. He says it lengthens the working day to keep the laborer himself in the normal degree of dependence. The second related way it did it was by driving down wages, creating a wage ceiling. He quotes from a parliamentary member, quote, It was forbidden, under pain of imprisonment, to pay higher wages than those fixed by the statute. But the taking of higher wages was more severely punished than by giving them, end quote. So employers could literally be imprisoned for paying wages higher than the limits set by the state, but workers were imprisoned for longer for accepting those wages. And finally, there was the outlawing of trade unions and coalitions and charging organizers with conspiracy. In the last paragraph, he says, quote, "By a decree of June 14, 1791, they declared all coalition of the workers as an attempt against liberty and the Declaration of the Rights of Man, punishable by a fine of 500 livres, together with deprivation of the rights of an active citizen for one year." End quote. So the chapters we just covered showed how, in England and in some parts of Europe, labor power as a commodity appeared on the market. And we also saw some of the ways that capitalists acquired the land and their wealth. But the next three chapters focus more specifically on the development of capitalists. Chapter 29 looks at the transition of farmers into capitalist farmers. The story here goes something like this. In England, farmers originate as serfs who become bailiffs and then farmers who are basically serfs except for they exploit other wage laborers and then they become sort of half farmers who split capital investment between themselves and the landlord and then finally, quote, farmer proper who makes his own capital breed by employing wage laborers and pays a part of the surplus product in money or in kind to the landlord as rent, end quote. And so this positioned them to accumulate capital during the agricultural revolution that Marx already described. Then in chapter 30, he looks at the reaction of the agricultural revolution on industry. So with the peasantry driven off the land, they were separated from the means of subsistence necessary to sustain life. But through that same process, the means of subsistence were turned into commodities that could be sold on the market. Now, the essence of these didn't change at all, but their form did. So as he writes on 531 Online, 699 International, and 910 Penguin, quote, in fact, the events that transformed the small peasants into wage laborers and their means of subsistence and of labor into material elements of capital created at the same time a home market for the latter. Formerly, the peasant family produced the means of subsistence and the raw materials which they themselves, for the most part, consumed. These raw materials and means of subsistence have now become commodities. The large farmer sells them. He finds his market and manufactures. So, in other words, the processes not only provided labor power for capital, they also provided the market to absorb the commodities or to realize the commodities now produced. Now, chapter 31 looks at the creation of the industrial capitalist and the revolutionary process of the production of capitalism, including the role that colonialism and slavery and the role of the state played in it, and more. He begins by restating what he said earlier in the book, that capital proper comes from usurers' capital and merchants' capital, from those lending money to get more money, and from those buying commodities and then bringing them to the market, often traveling great distances and selling them for more money. But how did these become capital proper? He quotes from someone who asks, By what law or series of laws was it affected? And Marx's response is this, The author should have remembered that revolutions are not made by laws! Exclamation point. So merchant and user capital, Mark says in the third paragraph, were, quote, prevented from turning into industrial capital in the country by the feudal constitution, in the towns by the guild organization. Industrial capital therefore developed outside of these towns and instead at seaports or inland points, end quote. So the guilds protected the power of laborers and prevented the de-skilling of workers and the power of landed property, which we read about in chapter 10 created a fierce struggle between feudalism and capitalism. And so capitalism at first emerged elsewhere. He then moves to how the formation of industrial capitalism was absolutely dependent on slavery and colonialism. Quote, the discovery by Europeans of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, The beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for commercial hunting of black people, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation." End quote. So, this is now, I think, the third time Marx has used the word idyllic proceeding, and this is obviously a sarcastic reference to Capital's idyllic tale of primitive accumulation. So, the state worked together with Capital to conquer new markets, transform feudalism into capitalism, and to shorten the transition, to loot resources, to enslave people, to commit genocide, to impose and create national debts protectionism, tariffs, and so on. And the money and wealth that flowed from the colonies to the colonizing countries disguised the nature of its origins as it transformed into capital. At the end of the fifth paragraph, he writes, quote, these methods depend in part on brute force, e.g., the colonial system, but they all employ the power of the state, the concentrated and organized force of society, To hasten, hothouse fashion, the process of transformation of the feudal mode of production into the capitalist mode and to shorten the transition. Force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. It is itself an economic power, end quote. So if you remember in chapter 10, Marx told us that between equal rights, force decides. We've seen repeatedly throughout the book how the juridical notions of capitalism derive from and in turn justify and uphold capitalism, which is why we can only appeal to them for reforms. And each mode of production will have its own legal superstructure, its own conception of rights. So taken together, this means that it is ultimately force that produces a new society and new conceptions and practices of social relations. Revolutions, again, are made by force and not by law.
0: This quote stuck out to me so much. Between equal rights, force decides. I know Marx wrote about this in terms of determining working hours and conditions and pay, but it seems to me like it applies outside of work too. And for example, the uprising against racism of 2020, We're all equal under the law, right? And yet it was only when people went out into the streets, a forceful act, that the demand for justice was brought to the front.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, struggle is about force, even within the limits of the law. So if you think about the uprisings, they were really part of the ongoing struggle against racist apartheid in the United States. Even when the law says that all are equal, that's not the case. And the struggle determines what happens, right? And that includes not just the struggle in the legal arena, but most importantly, in the streets. And also in this part, this final part of the book, Marx says that force itself is an economic power and that revolutions aren't made by laws. I mean, that's quite a statement, a true one, that we should always remember. No revolution happens through legal mechanisms. Revolutions create entirely new modes of production, entirely new ways of organizing society, including new laws and new legal relations that are based on the new mode of production. Marx then turns to the national debt again, or the public system of credit, linking it with colonialism. He writes on 535 Online, 706 International, and 919 Penguin, quote, the colonial system with its maritime trade and commercial wars served as a forcing house for it, debt. Thus, it first took root in Holland. National debts, i.e., the alienation of the state, marked with its stamp, the capitalistic era. The only part of the so-called national wealth that actually enters into the collective possessions of modern peoples is their national debt." We see this again and again today. The profits that come from finance capital are privatized, but the debts that come from it are publicized. The people are forced to pay for the debts of the capitalists and the state but we don't get a share in any of the wealth produced, obviously. He continues to note, quote, The public debt becomes one of the most powerful levers of primitive accumulation. As with the stroke of an enchanter's wand, it endows barren money with the power of breeding and thus turns it into capital, without the necessity of its exposing itself to the troubles and risks inseparable from its employment in industry or even in usury, end quote. So there's two takeaways from this. The first is that when states give money to banks like they did with the 2008 bailout and the 2020 COVID bailout, and remember from chapter 25 in the previous episode, this is what spurs the centralization of capital. And the second is when they give money to colonized countries and use that debt to reduce or eliminate their sovereignty. This is what the IMF does, the World Bank, and other financial institutions of our day. They do this to keep them in conditions of colonial subjugation, so to therefore reproduce the capitalist relation or the imperialist relation. That public debt is a lever of accumulation results from the fact that it both accelerates colonialism and propels increasing taxation of workers. So as Marx writes a little bit later on, over-taxation is not an incident but rather a principle. The capitalist system can't function without debt, credit and taxation. And Marx critiques some economists who argue that debt and taxes are the cause of poverty and misery rather than capitalism. And then let's go to 537 Online, 708 International, and 922 Penguin. Quote, colonial system, public debts, heavy taxes, protection, commercial wars, etc., These children of the true manufacturing period increased gigantically during the infancy of modern industry. The birth of the latter is heralded by a great slaughter of the innocent." End quote. And he later says that, quote, Liverpool waxed fat on the slave trade. This was its method of primitive accumulation. And that, whilst the cotton industry introduced child slavery in England, it gave in the United States a stimulus to the transformation of the earlier, more or less patriarchal slavery into a system of commercial exploitation. In fact, the veiled slavery of the wage workers in Europe needed for its pedestal, slavery, pure and simple in the new world." End quote. So, we saw in chapter 15 that machinery introduced child slavery into industry and increased the demand for cotton in the US, which made slavery even more barbaric and even more degrading. So, Marx here is highlighting the international character of the working class and the oppressed, how our fates are tied together, and how the accumulation of capital in the colonizing countries depended on colonialism. All of this force and violence, he says quote, established the eternal laws of nature of the capitalist mode of production, end quote. And so he continues in a famous passage in the last sentence, quote, if money, according to Auger, who was a French playwright from Marxist time, comes into the world with the congenital blood stain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt, end quote. So in these chapters, Marx shows some of the ways that the capital relation came into being, how it depended on expropriation, theft, genocide, slavery, degradation, the violent disciplining of populations, the intensification of colonialism, all of which were mediated by the state. And it did this through force, through a long revolutionary process that overthrew without necessarily completely eliminating other modes of production. And again, Marx is telling a particular historical story. But there's nothing in here to indicate that this was relegated to a previous historical era. This kind of accumulation still happens, and it's still crucial to capitalism. Just think about the primitive accumulation that propelled capitalist gains during the 1990s, after the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc socialist countries. Basically, what happened was that all of the common wealth, common means of production, was privatized. The entire social wealth was held in common by the people, but it was expropriated, privatized, and the people were turned into proletarians. And this is, in part, what so many imperialist wars are about. Overthrowing governments so that they can take common collective property, and privatize it. It happens domestically, too, every time they take something public and make it private. Charter schools, for example, do this in education. The licensing of water rights to corporations does this. Allowing corporations to build pipelines does this, and so on. Now, chapter 32 turns away from the historical empirical inquiry and presents a succinct dialectical and historical materialist analysis of the tendency of capitalist accumulation and how the contradictions of capitalism might result in particular revolutionary tendencies. It's a very short chapter, but there's a lot in here, and so we'll read a lot of what Marx says directly. We begin with the private property of individual laborers, which is the basis of petty industry, agriculture, or handicraft production. Now this also exists, he says, under slavery or serfdom, but only attains its adequate classical form, only where the laborer is the private owner of his own means of labor set in action by himself, the peasant of the land which he cultivates. All of this prevents the concentration of the means of production, division of labor, and cooperation of labor, the production of the collective social labor, and so it remains locked within the production and circulation of use values. But halfway through the first paragraph, Marx notes that, quote, at a certain stage of development, it brings forth the material agencies for its own dissolution. From that moment, new social forces and new passions spring up in the bosom of society. But the old social organization fetters them and keeps them down. It must be annihilated. It is annihilated. So here we have the contradiction between the productive forces and the social relations. The productive forces, which are built upon a prior set of labor arrangements, lead the way to a new set of relations of production. This annihilation is the annihilation of individual private property, which is scattered, and it transforms them into socially concentrated means of production, as Marx says, quote, of the pygmy property of the many into the huge property of the few, end quote, and the expropriation we just read about in the previous chapters. Capital expropriates peasants and then other capitalists through, for example, centralization. As such, The justification of private property based on individual producers changes into the justification of private property based on the exploitation of the many by the few. Now, accompanying centralization is a development of labor as a cooperative social process, the application of science to production, the creation of means of production to be used in common, quote, the entanglement of all peoples in the net of the world market, and with this, the international character of the capitalistic regime. Quote. So, as capital accumulates and centralizes, it also socializes production and makes it so the means of production are used in common. It produces the proletarian class. Thus, on the other side of the dialectic, we see that as capital grows, quote, with this too grows the revolt of the working class, a class always increasing in numbers and disciplined, united, organized by the very mechanism of the process of capitalist production itself, end quote. So at this point, there's again a disjuncture between the productive forces and the relations of production. As Marx continues, quote, the monopoly of capital becomes a fetter upon the mode of production, which has sprung up and flourished along with and under it. Centralization of the means of production and socialization of labor at last reach a point where they become incompatible with their capitalist integument. Thus, integument is burst asunder. The knell of capitalist private property sounds. The expropriators are expropriated, end quote. So here we have the negation of the negation. The first negation is the transformation of individual private property into the collective property of capital. The second negation is the transformation of the collective property of capital into the collective property of labor. This, Marx says, quote, does not reestablish private property for the producer, but gives him individual property based on the acquisitions of the capitalist era, i.e. on cooperation and the possession in common of the land and of the means of production." And finally, Marx makes one last note. He writes, The transformation of scattered private property arising from individual labor into capitalist private property is naturally a process incomparably more protracted, violent, and difficult than the transformation of capitalistic private property already practically resting on socialized production into socialized property. In the former case, we had the expropriation of the mass of people by a few usurpers. In the latter, we have the expropriation of a few usurpers by the mass of the people, quote. So the violence entailed in the capitalist revolution might pale in comparison with that of the socialist revolution. And that's how he ends this brief chapter. It's a quick overview and analysis, and it's important not to read it as an empirical prediction but rather as an examination of the contradictions that drive different modes of production forward and toward their dissolution and overthrow. So it shouldn't be read mechanistically. As we know, socialist revolutions so far have happened not where capitalism was most developed, and thus where the capitalist class was strongest, but where the capitalist class was weakest. And they also happened in colonized countries, where communists formed united fronts with anti-colonial struggles and then competed for leadership before and after liberation. But it nonetheless holds a lot of relevance for our struggle in the U.S., where the contradictions between private ownership and socialized production are so intense and where the material foundations required, as Marx said earlier, to blow the foundation sky high are already present but yet again, it isn't a mechanistic process. We've seen Marx emphasize class struggle, the role of ideology, the struggles between different political currents, the states, and other factors that can't be predicted. It still holds tremendous explanatory power, but we have to keep in mind all these other elements that Marx has insisted on throughout the book. Now, one of the most useful examples of how capitalist private property is a fetter on production in our current moment concerns healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Under capitalism, we have different corporations, each trying to compete to develop treatments for various diseases like COVID-19. And because of competition in private property, they protect their research. Think about how much more productive we could be if this research was shared, if it was held in common. Now, it's worth noting the difference between this short chapter and the end of chapter 10 on the working day. There, Marx ended with a call for organizing for an eight-hour workday, what he called an all-powerful Magna Carta. Now, here he describes the overthrow of the capitalist mode of production. When we think about these together, it's clear that Marx is thinking about reform and revolution not as incompatible, but as dialectically related.
0: At one point, Derek, you say that the fate of the international working class is tied together. Can you explain why this is and why is it that our fates are connected?
1: Marx's point here is the same as it was in chapter 10 when he spoke about the anti-slavery struggle, that the fate of the working class and the oppressed are tied together. We also saw this in the section on reproduction and in the last episode because for Marx, the working class isn't just those who are currently working in factories or other workplaces. It includes the entirety of those exploited, oppressed, and dispossessed by capitalism. When he says white workers can't be free until the enslavement of black people is abolished, he's saying that wage workers have less power when others are literally enslaved and not getting a wage at all. And Marx, of course, was really involved in the anti-slavery struggle, not just through his writings and analysis, but through working with different groups in the United States and also in England. And throughout Capital, we've seen again and again how capitalism pits workers against each other to increase their profits and their power. So they pit the employed against the unemployed. They pit black workers against white workers, workers of different genders against each other, workers of different nations against each other. And internationalism means fighting for all those exploited and oppressed under imperialism today. Just think about the outsourcing of labor, right? Because capital flows to where it can make the most profit. So if wages are higher in the U.S. than they are, for example, in Malaysia, then capital will move there. But if the international working class is united, we're fighting for workers in Malaysia as well. And this is why national chauvinism is such an important strategy of capitalism. It was in Marx's time, and it is today. And it's why Marx insisted on fighting it, Lenin did, and the PSL does too. Just think back to Russiagate, right? It was basically a way of pitting workers in the US against workers and the government in Russia saying, you know, no, direct your anger over there because we are all American. And I think it also explains the rising anti-China sentiments in the political establishment and how it trickles down into the working class, too. I remember at a recent UAW strike, we went out in solidarity, and I remember telling comrades, based on my previous experiences, that, you know, we had to try to drive cars that were owned by U.S. companies because they tow foreign cars out of their parking lots, and they have signs there that says that they do that. I mean, for one, obviously no car is actually completely made in the US. And this isn't to say that the UAW is inherently or hopelessly chauvinistic, but it's to give an example, right, of how the ruling class fosters an ideology that pits us against one another. And so our task here is to struggle within unions, within all the movements that we're a part of to build the kind of international working class solidarity that corresponds to the real, actual nature of the international collective working class that Marx has demonstrated exists throughout this book.
0: Amidst all of the anti-China, anti-Russia, anti-communist rhetoric and racism, there's this view that that's just the way it is. Capitalism and class society, that's just the way it is. War and imperialism, that's just the way it is. And that's how it was presented back then. And that same way is the way that it's presented today. But we know that's not true, because we know that capitalism has not always existed, that class society has not always existed. And this strikes me as what makes understanding capital so relevant today, because this shows the real development of how capital, bloody capital, actually developed. Through slavery, genocide, colonialism, imperialism, and that there is a way for the working class to fight and win when we build a revolutionary party.
1: Yeah, it's wild how relevant Marx's point is here today, Did all of this force establish the quote-unquote eternal laws of capital. And, you know, every ruling class presents itself as a conclusion of history, the way it's always been or the way it always should have been. All of history has been leading up to this moment. We can't surpass it. And obviously this is demonstrably false. I mean, for one, just think about how we think about ourselves today as individuals. That's a modern bourgeois category. We always haven't thought about ourselves as individuals or as members of nations. That's also why the capitalists love to speak about the middle class and why they hated Bernie Sanders because he spoke of the working class. That's why we have to fight to unite the working class, all those who work, who are unemployed, who are oppressed and exploited, and fight to organize, to force a revolutionary transformation of society. And when we show people that things haven't always been that way, we also show them that things don't have to be this way, that they can be different. A lot of people see that now. They hate the way things are. And the struggle is to organize them and to educate others about why things are the way they are, to show them that we can create an entirely new world where things are totally different, where we're united as a community, where we look out for each other, where people are provided for, and so on. And that can't happen sporadically or spontaneously or through disconnected efforts. The most effective vehicle for that is the party. And then we get to the final chapter of the book, chapter 33 on the modern theory of colonization. And the placement of this chapter, I think, is incredibly interesting. After the revolutionary crescendo in the last chapter, Marx returns to a tamer examination of Eben Wakefield's theory of colonialism. Wakefield, by the way, was a kidnapper and an ex-con in addition to being a political theorist. So the key to Wakefield's discovery, he writes, this is on 543 Online, 717 International, and 932 Penguin is, quote, the capital is not a thing, but a social relation between persons established by the instrumentality of things, end quote. Colonialism is a process that establishes these relations in the colonies. But, quote, if the laborer can accumulate for himself, And this he can do so long as he remains possessor of his means of production. Capitalist accumulation and the capitalistic mode of production are impossible. So this is really what Marx is working through. Labor markets are in short supply, but capitalists need to produce and realize their capital. So how to produce these relations of capital? Marx gives Wakefield's answer to this on 546 Online, 722 International, and 938 Penguin. Quote, the trick is to kill two birds with one stone. Let the government put upon the virgin soil an artificial price independent of the law of supply and demand, a price that compels the immigrant to work for a long time for wages before he can earn enough money to buy land and turn himself into a peasant. This is the great secret of Wakefield's theory, right? He admits the tactics of primitive accumulation. So Wakefield didn't try to hide the violence of colonialism or exploitation through notions of equal and free rights of property. He explicitly acknowledged the need to expropriate people from the land and the means of subsistence. And Marx then ends the book by telling us again that the capitalist mode of production and accumulation, therefore capitalist private property, are based on expropriation, colonialism, genocide, and slavery. So why does Marx end the book with this chapter instead of the previous one where he's talking about expropriating the expropriators or the socialist revolution? Why, after that concise chapter with a revolutionary clarion call, include these few pages on a theory of colonialism? Marx never told us, but I think there's one likely justification. After focusing on the internal dynamics of capitalism, this last section gets at some of the history of the origins of capital. And in chapter 32, he sums up the process of the formation of capital, the development of capitalism and its antagonisms and contradictions, and a call for revolution. Ending with chapter 33, I think, implicitly tells us that the contradictions of capitalism, which can't be solved within capitalism, can be pushed back and transformed through colonialism and imperialism. So in other words, by ending with this chapter, Marx leaves open the possibility of capitalism transforming into imperialism proper, which of course brings us to Lenin. But in any case, we're now at the end of volume one of Capital. I wanna thank everyone for listening and or reading along. And I wanna encourage you to revisit the book, Read it and study it again with comrades, introduce the book to new people, and incorporate its arguments into your organizing and agitating. As I said at the beginning of the series, it's not a book that has every single answer, but it has a lot of answers, and more importantly, provides the most developed form of Marx's critique of capitalism, as well as his method for analyzing capitalism. So I really hope you enjoyed the series. I've definitely enjoyed the opportunity to read the book again, to study it with you all. For more educational materials on Marxism, please check out liberationschool.org. And if you've liked this series, please share it with others. But the series isn't yet over. There's going to be one more episode where we review, revisit, discuss, and extend our collective reading of the book. So until next time, solidarity comrades.
0: did it, comrades! I hope you feel as good as I do about how much we've learned together. Before we close, I wanted to give you some parting information. In the near future, we're going to add one final episode that Derek mentioned that is just an overall discussion with some of the guests about all of Volume One. So if you don't see that on your playlist just yet, stay tuned for that. I want to make sure to invite you to check out liberationschool.org. If you enjoyed this series, Those of us who made it, including myself and Derek, we have so much more material for you to learn from on Liberation School. And many of those writings you can find narrated on the podcast Liberation Audio. And our biggest hope is that some of what you've learned here has inspired you to put theory into action. And if you're not already in a socialist organization, you take that step to get more involved. This series was made entirely by members of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and we welcome you to check us out at pslweb.org. And you can find us on almost all social media platforms at PSLWeb. And if you like the series, let us know. Who knows? It could be the first of many. But that all depends on listenership and feedback. So if you like what you have heard, please be sure to recommend it to others. Let us know on social media at PSLWeb. Drop a comment on these episodes and leave a review on whichever podcasting platform you're using. And of course, we're still available. If you'd like some extra help with anything that we've covered in the class, by contacting us at, at org. And lastly, I just want to thank everyone who's made this show possible. Our director, Mike Preisner, me as your producer, our audio engineer, Nick de La Riva. our music composer, Anahedron, graphic artist, Nathan Schmidt, And of course, Derek Ford, who not only served as the editorial manager, but also put in so much time into teaching this class. And we want to also give a big thank you to you, our listeners, who've made this all possible. Again, huge congratulations on completing this course with the conclusion of this episode. You should be so proud of yourself for sticking with this, and we look forward to hearing from you. I really want to thank you for listening and to being a part of this, no matter where you are because even if we're not actually in the same room or talking to each other, I've really felt like this was a collective experience. Thanks for joining us and reading Capital with Comrades.